Some people love Shakespeare, others not so much. But a Shakespeare adaptation is always a good time. Constellation Theater at 14th and T is featuring a musical called Desperate Measures. It's based off of Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure, but it's set in the Wild West. A gunslinging nun teams up with a sheriff and a saloon dancer to save her brother. Buy tickets now at constellationtheater.org. The show runs through March 17th. Once again, that's constellationtheater.org. Today on CityCast DC, it has been yet another rough week for Metro and its safety commission. Uh, This time it seems like maybe they should go to like couples counseling or something. Lead producer Priyanka Tilvey is here. She is going to explain what's going on. CityCast DC contributor Dan Reed is also here with me. We're going to talk about that. And we are going to talk about the new ambitious Maryland governor and DC e-bikes and the chance that the city might actually foot the bill for yours. Today is Friday, January 20th, 2023. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Morning, Priyanka. Hey, Dan. Good morning. Morning. So, Priyanka, there may be more bad news ahead for Metro, uh, or at least for Metro wait times, if not for Metro safety. Uh, Can you explain to us what's going on? Yeah, so it's kind of wild. Um, This past weekend, Metro and its regulator, which is the Washington Metro Rail Safety Commission, they had this really public fight. So there was mixed messaging, there was confusion. It got so bad that they're actually asking for a mediator (laughs) to intervene now and help them sort out their issues. So, I mean, this goes way back. But essentially what happened most recently is that the Safety Commission said that the agency needed to pull, like, 50 train operators from work over a training issue. They said that they hadn't been trained as much as they were supposed to. And so Metro was then forced to say like, okay, well, if we're not going to have these train operators, then starting on Tuesday, the blue, orange, and silver lines are going to have fewer operators. And so it's going to run every 25 minutes. And then before that change could actually take effect, so like within essentially 24 hours of making this announcement, Metro CEO Randy Clark came back and was like, actually, no, JK, those operators are all trained up. We're keeping them working and we're going to stick to this 10-minute wait time. And it's just created yet another clash between these two agencies, these two groups, and also kind of just like puts Metro's safety issues at the forefront of commuters' minds. And like this is at a time when Ridership has been really down since the pandemic. Metro is trying to get more people to come ride the trains, commute, whatever. And um, I don't know. I personally feel like the safety commission's out here saying, oh, Metro isn't safe. Metro isn't following safety regulations. That does not make me want to ride a train. The safety stuff at Metro goes back to before to the before times, to pre-pandemic. And the last... 10 or 15 years has been a series of hiccups on that front where Metro has not covered itself in glory. So they wound up with this oversight body that it's now picking on them. Mm -hmm. Is the oversight body right? Are they still like kind of cutting corners? Well, you could say so for sure. Um, So like one of the other things that came up this weekend is that all of this kind of comes back to the 7,000 series trains. Those are 60% of Metro's fleet. And they were all pulled a few years ago because 
the safety commission was like, these trains are not safe. You haven't conducted them in a safe way. We need to pull them. We need to check them before we can release them so that people actually ride them. We're supposed to be nearing the point when those trains all come back. And Metro wanted to scale back wheel inspections. So right now they're doing wheel inspections every four days and they want to do them once a week instead. So that's every seven days instead of every four days. And that's one of the things the safety commission is like, nope, that's too infrequent. That would be unsafe. You can't do that. Whether or not that's actually a really big difference, like I am not a train engineer, so I don't actually know myself. To some extent, it does sound like overly finicky and arbitrary punitive, which is what Metro says. Metro says that the safety commission just over and over again just keeps making these arbitrary decisions. They sound like, oh, like they're picking on us. Whereas the safety commission's like, we keep finding violations. We keep finding things that you're doing that are unsafe. There was apparently this one engineer that was supposed to have eight hours of operation with a training instructor and he only had nine minutes. So, I mean, I can see why the safety commission would be like, Metro, you're not doing your job and you're putting riders' lives at risk. Well, there's kind of a tension here, right? Because, you know, the regulator's job is, of course, to regulate, and that's what they're doing. And it's the agency's job to run trains and to get people to run the trains. You know, I I saw an ad for the Silver Line on the news this morning, right? Like, they want to get people excited about it again. And there might be a way for these two agencies to work together about messaging it, right? Like, Randy Clark wants people to feel safe riding Metro again. And so the issue isn't necessarily that there are all these safety issues. The issue is, are they doing something about it? And I think that's the job that the commission and WMATA have to start showing to people is that they are actually working together to find a solution as opposed to just arguing with each other. So publicly. Right. But the bigger hole here, it seems to me, is if right now they're holding out Trains come in every 10 minutes at rush hour as like the good end of the spectrum, you know, averting disaster. That's kind of a disaster already. This is a big city. If you are commuting to work on time, uh, you need to, you know, be able to count on it to be there. If you, God forbid, if you've got a plane to catch, um, which they're now trying to get us to do, you want to be there on time. And if the trains come that infrequently, whether the cause is legit safety concerns or just budget or anything else, this is really the long-term disaster because people make these micro decisions every day. And the fact that there's just constant unpredictability, this is just the latest of those things. And I don't see, I mean, is there a, a plan to get back to it being like a predictable system? Well, that's part of why Metro is so insistent on trying to push forward through these inspections for the 7,000 series trains, because they have a goal to get the full 7,000 series fleet back by the summer, which would mean five minute wait times, which I mean, for a city this size, I'm not sure five minutes is the ideal either, but it's certainly a lot better than 10. People's expectations of the Metro have fallen so much. I was talking to somebody who just finished college and explaining that the Metro used to run until 3 a.m., which wasn't that long ago, and it just blew his mind, right? (laughs) I didn't know that. Oh, my gosh. On the weekends, it ran until 3 a.m. That's amazing. See? People don't know anymore. Yeah. The brand new Arbor at Tacoma is built for your most convenient urban living. Whether you want to enjoy the vibrant Tacoma, D.C. community or comfortably retreat into a sleek sanctuary all your own, 
The kitchens have striking dark navy and white cabinets, and throughout the home, there are wood floors and smart home technology. Some homes even have a private outdoor space. With a quick walk to the metro, you can easily head into downtown or stay close and enjoy the retail that's on-site. Located at 218 Cedar Street Northwest, the Arbor Tacoma offers brand new one- and two-bedroom condos starting in the upper 300,000s. Visit thearborattacoma.com for more information. That's Tacoma with a K. So T-H-E-A-R-B-O-R-A-T-T-A-K-O-M-A.com. All right, but speaking of things that actually are ambitious and uh, new and have not yet generated complaints, Dan, your state, Maryland, uh, where you reside, has a new governor as of this week. It's kind of interesting here. The two neighboring states of D.C. Uh, have both have governors that are going to be the subject of a lot of national media attention. Glenn Youngkin's talked about as a presidential candidate. Hogan, now former governor of Maryland, has talked about as a presidential candidate. And I think everyone's about to hear a ton about Wes Moore, who was inaugurated as the first black governor in Maryland history, who has an amazing CV. Dan, like, what's the deal? Tell us about him. That's right, Mike. Our New Governor Wes Moore was sworn in on Wednesday. Today is his second full day as governor. And there is a tremendous amount of anticipation, not just around him, but around his entire administration, right? He's the first black governor and one of three elected black governors in U.S. history. His lieutenant governor, Aruna Miller, is the first immigrant in Maryland history. We have the first female comptroller, Brooke Learman. And Westmore is also one of the youngest governors in the U.S. Uh, I looked this up. The youngest governor is Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas. And Westmore is just four months older than the previous youngest governor, Ron DeSantis in Florida, which shocked me. I did not believe he was that young. But wait, so he's he's also a combat veteran and like a b- author and a this is a pretty awesome resume. He brings a lot to the table. And I think what people were excited about is that he is not, you know, quote unquote, political insider. And he's got this sort of inspiring persona. Like he wrote a book called The Other West Moore about the life of someone with the same name as him who was born into very different circumstances. He was introduced at his inauguration by Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many governors had Oprah at their inauguration, but it speaks to the amount of, I think, national attention he's already gotten and will get. It reminds me, I hate to say it, a little bit of Barack Obama, who was a state senator when he was invited to speak at the Democratic National Convention in 2004. So in the meantime, he's got stuff to do. Like he's got a state to administer. There's some things going on there uh, that we're curious about. Like Hogan, you know, famously clashed about public transit, about investment in the metro in Baltimore and in the Purple Line in the suburbs of D.C. There is about to be legal cannabis. In the event he becomes a national political figure, he's going to have to say, I did X, Y, and Z in Maryland. So what is X, Y, and Z? That's a great question. You know, in the previous governors, it was very clear what they were going to do, right? When Bob Ehrlich was elected 20 years ago, it was a given that he was going to build this highway called the Intercounty Connector that was super controversial. When Larry Hogan was elected in 2014, it was pretty clear to transit advocates that the Purple Line and the Red Line in Baltimore were like on their like death throes. Uh, we don't quite know as much about Westmore's like local platform, right? As you mentioned, he is supportive of legalizing weed and also expunging the records of anybody who is a convicted 
of simple possession of weed, and also prioritizing access to the sort of growing marijuana industry because there have been concerns since Maryland legalized recreational marijuana a few years ago that black investors and businesses were being shut out already. We don't know as much about his platform on like transportation, for example, right? You know, Governor Hogan had this plan to widen I-270 and Capitol Beltway by four lanes, like four toll lanes, which had engendered a lot of controversy in Montgomery and Prince George's counties. Governor Moore has said he's going to take a, quote, equity lens to that project as he revisits it. But it's not really clear what that means, right? It could mean he's going to just cancel them entirely. It could mean that he's going to find some way to tweak it, but they'll look kind of the same. And I think that those kinds of things are what advocates and and local politics people are going to have to be paying attention to is what does it actually mean when he applies like this lofty language that has surrounded his campaign and a lot of the expectations around him to actual nuts and bolts projects. Right. Like show that he can walk the walk. Right. I guess a lot of this didn't really get hashed out in the campaign because he was running against an extremist who was like disqualified from the minute he got nominated. Yeah. Dan Cox's uh, biggest claims to fame is that uh, in a previous campaign, he sprayed skunk urine on his campaign signs because he was afraid that people would steal them. Wes Moore was handed a a gift (laughs) after a a very competitive Democratic primary. Yeah, It wasn't really about the issues. It was simply about uh, showing that you were a human adult who is capable of running an administration. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty low bar for someone we have such high expectations for. Unfortunately. So who is worried in Maryland about sweet deals that might be ending for them? I think one, I wouldn't call it worry, but sort of a curiosity is that because Westmore does not come from a political background, it's not as clear who his base and who his people are, right? You know, Larry Hogan had built this like political movement around him, uh, leading to him taking office. You know, he also was outside of politics, but you know, his dad had been a county executive and people kind of knew what he was about. Westmore doesn't have that. So he's got like a hack deficit. (laughs) That's right. We don't know how much of a hack he is or who his hacks are. Everyone's got hacks. I've got hacks. You guys, you got (laughs) hacks. Me. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess the common thread in our uh, show today is getting around. With Westmore, the Purple Line's going to be top of mind. Metro is obviously Metro. Um, But in the District of Columbia, there is an initiative in the council to give residents a subsidy for purchase of an e-bike or an electronic bike that is the, the ones with a little bit of power, a little juice to help you get up the hill. If you are lower income, you could get 1200 bucks towards the purchase of an e-bike. If you are not, you can still get 400 bucks as long as the store you buy it in is in D.C. Uh, the idea here is the city's continuing effort to get people out of their dang cars uh, and onto other ways of getting around town. This has been a subject of a lot of controversy. People who don't like bike lanes, people who do like bike lanes, <clears throat> people who feel like Bikes are an affectation of people who are wealthier or healthier or less encumbered by having to drop kids off at school or or all the other things that make it tougher to ride bikes. The argument for this is this helps us get around some of those equity issues. The thing that's kind of grabbed me, though, is, you know, we've been in this kick. The mayor gave a presentation last week where she talked about DC's comeback plan. There's 
worries about like metros way down ridership. Municipalities are going to have to make up the losses out of the budget. DC's population has stopped growing. There is, on one hand, this vocabulary of sort of great problem used that we are in a in a moment where the the boom times are threatened, and yet this is an initiative which you know amounts to giving away quite a lot of money to people, sort of like the free metro <clears throat> pass plan, and I'm not. You know, I'm not a budget wonk, so I don't know what's affordable and what's not. But there is a a kind of a a sense of of dissonance between the two things: between presenting the city as the place that needs a quote unquote comeback plan, and presenting the city as a place where we can afford to help people buy a new way of getting around. I can kind of see how those things go together, right? You know, we saw that bicycling increased during the pandemic, and you could sort of see the argument that part of getting people back involved in the city, going downtown, spending money, going out, finding a job, getting a job, what have you, is making it easier for them to get around, right? And just like you said, e-bikes kind of address some of the like issues that keep people from riding regular bikes, right? You know, if you have limited mobility, or if you're like me, and you just live on a big hill, e-bikes make it a lot easier for you to ride a bike. And that means, theoretically, fewer cars on the road, but also you know, maybe the ability to take trips you wouldn't do otherwise. Dan, you have an e-bike, right? That's right. I, I made a, after several months of research, made a somewhat rash decision to buy an e-bike like a week into the pandemic because I was afraid all the bike shops were going to close. <laughs> mm. So I, I rushed out and bought like the last e-bike available in the store. And I love it. Like I said, I live in a big hill and uh, the bike makes it so that hill doesn't really exist anymore. It, the pep is like, it's really actually, it works, right? Like you just shoot up the hill, don't do barely any work. That's amazing. It is very heavy. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll be honest, like I don't use it as much as I could because I don't like carrying it up and down stairs. Oh, yeah. I hadn't even considered that. That seems annoying. And sort of the antithesis of what you're looking for when you're looking for an easy mode of transportation. And that sort of introduces a whole other problem, which is like we're giving money for people to buy e-bikes easily. We have to figure out where they're going to park them, right? If you live in a walk-up apartment, like it might be kind of hard to figure out where you're going to put it. You're not going to lock it up on the street. Uh, I have had bikes stolen that way. So I think it's a good idea, but there's there's other stuff that has to be worked out. We're going to really think through what it means to give people access to this. Yeah. I will say one thing that I was surprised by is that like I had I had no idea how much an e-bike costs. And so I started to look into it after I saw that this rebate was a thing. Um, and there are a bunch of stores in DC that sell e-bikes. And the pricing honestly is between like a thousand and four thousand, depending on what kind of bike you want. And so the twelve hundred dollar rebate can buy you a bike completely free, which is amazing. And those stores, and maybe you should start one, may get a major subsidy from you and me. If they can find a way to make e-bikes less heavy, that's the solution, I think. (laughs) Yeah, and safe parking and also rain flies or something for them. Especially this week, it's been raining so much this week and it doesn't seem like a lot of fun to bike around with an e-bike in the rain. Oh, there's nothing more punk rock than riding a bike in the rain. (laughs) All right, well, on that note, I will see you guys at the e-bike corral. Priyanka, Dan, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. And that's all for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilbe. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. 
And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Is DC really a like a super punk rock city anymore? <laughs> Was that a super controversial thing to say? <laughs> That's a whole episode right there. Too. <laughs> <laughs>